Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Mike Boyle. Michael is one of the foremost experts in the field of performance training and the co-founder of Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. Prior to starting his business, Michael served as the head strength conditioning coach at Boston University. From 1991 to 99, he served as a strength conditioning coach for the Boston Bruins of the National Hockey League. Mike was the strength conditioning coach with the Boston Red Sox when they won the World Series in 2013. He also served in the same capacity for U.S. women's Olympic ice hockey team, gold medalists in Nagano and silver medalists in Sochi, and has served as a consultant to USA Hockey National Team Development Program. He currently spends his time lecturing, teaching, training, and writing, and has been a featured speaker at numerous strength and conditioning and athletic training conferences across the world. He is the father of two children with his wife, Cindy. The reason I've asked Mike on Leave Your Mark is because he is the epitome of the title of this podcast. He has left an undeniable mark on the industry of athletic performance and on countless athletes and professionals, young and old. His legacy will last far beyond his time on this earth, and I consider myself blessed to call him a peer. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, this is going to be a a lot of fun. Um, You know... It's as a starting question, and I'm kind of interested in this because we don't, and we sort of chatted before we started this thing. It's not always what we end up doing that we dreamed of doing when we were a kid. What did you dream of doing when you're a little boy? When you looked up in the stars, did you, did you, what did you want to be? Well, I didn't want to be this because it didn't exist. I, I've had this conversation a few times in the last couple of years with people. There was no such thing as a strength and conditioning coach. And my dad was a coach. Uh, high school teacher, high school principal. So I, I guess I thought I would be doing something in this field. I think like most of us as kids, we have these grand aspirations that we'll have this great athletic career and then we'll figure it out after that's all over. And uh, <laughs> I've gotten the same old tired joke where I said my lack of talent and lack of size caught up with me and uh, ended my athletic career really prematurely. I'm not one of those guys who's going to tell you about my, my big knee injury that caused me to not make it to the NFL and <laughs> my, my lack of stature and lack of athletic ability. But what it did do was the fact that I was just an okay athlete made probably started to bring some of the stuff to the surface that was there anyway, in terms of, I was having a conversation with one of our guys the other day. I said, I had, I had a 110 pound weight set and I was trying to figure out how to weight train and how to get better 44 years ago in my basement you know i had the joe weeder wall chart out and i was looking at the stuff on the wall and i was i remember reading about walter payton finding a hill to run sprints so i found a hill to run sprints up and at that time i actually thought i was pretty normal Mm. but when you start to look back at it now you realize wow what a weirdo i was in terms of trying to figure out i figured out this whole idea that you could train for something and get better at it at a really young age well before it was popular I think a lot of our generation probably grew up the same way. I had a gym in my basement that I made out of two by fours and pieces of cold rolled steel. I think we all read the same magazines, et cetera, et cetera. What was life um, growing up for you like? Was it a, you know, a routine sort of U.S. Americana kid life or did you experience some, some difficult times? No, I was probably as like, Ozzy and Harriet white bread as you could possibly get in terms of my father was the principal of my high school. My mother was a school secretary. They were madly in love and were each other's best friends and were respected in the community. And it, 
could not have been more normal. Sometimes I think the hardest part about it was that it was so goddamn normal. It was so being my father's son, I think was one of the great burdens of my life because he was one of these guys that everybody liked and everybody looked up to my, the, the building uh, at the high school is named after him now. <laughs> so that's the kind of guy, you know, so when you're, when you're growing up, he was an all American football player. He's in the BU hall of fame for football. You know, he's just one of those kind of larger than life sort of guys. So I think that in and of itself might've been, you know, the, the some difficulty of that was that I was the, the son of an incredibly talented, popular guy. And that, that had a little bit of a burden to it. But when you look at what some people go through in terms of life experience, it was not too tough. Well, let's talk about that for a second, though. You know, going to school, everybody has different um, things that bring us to where we get to. And obviously, there's a weight associated with expectation when you're the principal's son. Did um, did your peers uh, make it difficult on you because of that? Or was was that uh, was it difficult to go walk into school every day because dad was the principal? It was a minority of people that made it difficult. But in general, I always said it's like when your dad's a cop or whatever it is. When you grow up with it, there is the expectation. It wasn't like one day I woke up and he was the principal of the high school. Mm-hmm. It, it was something that he had been there my whole life and I had been going to the school and going to practice and going to all that stuff as long as I could possibly remember. I actually, I, we were talking about it yesterday. The, uh, the folklore is that I was actually born during a football game that my father was coaching at and he was not at the birth. Now, I don't really, neither of my parents are alive, so I can't really verify that, but I know that's the story that I was told. So um, <laughs> it, it really wasn't a problem. I never saw that. I think the bigger problem was just, there was a real pressure to be perfect in my house. I said, my father was always happy as long as you didn't get in trouble and were good at sports and got good grades. Everything was great. <laughs> was, that was a lot of stuff for, you know, as a kid growing up in high school. So you just realize, and he was not a guy that you trifled with. He was a military policeman in world war II. Uh, he was a big, strong, physical person in a day when you could be that as a high school principal when no one cared if you grabbed a kid by the back of the neck and picked him up off the ground. Mm. In some ways, people were looking for you to do those sort of things, and people liked it. So he was a uh, – I won't say a throwback because that was the time. That was the whatever, the 60s, 70s, 80s. He was – I can remember as a really young kid him going down into Malden Square to – get the kids to go home when they were demonstrating against the Vietnam war. Mm. And he was the kind of guy that they would just like, yeah, he'll just go down and walk around and tell kids to go home and they'll go home because <laughs> they're afraid of him. <laughs> <laughs> what were the biggest um, sort of influence elements that your father contributed to you in your, in your later life as a father or as a coach or, or what have you? I think the you know, one of the biggest influences was that he really loved my mother. Like I, we, the idea of sort of divorce or infidelity, my father didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't swear. And so you kind of get brought up. I, I picked up a few of his bad, a few of his non-habits I've turned into habits, but um, the, you just got a really good example of what it was supposed to be like. I still, I'll meet people now in their seventies who will talk to me about my father and him in school and what he did for them when they were students. And I mean, I'm almost 60 and I'm meeting people who are significantly older than me who still have really vivid memories of him and the like, good things that he did. He was the kind of guy I can remember him, you know, he'd buy a suit jacket for a kid who didn't have a suit jacket to wear to a game. You know, he was that kind of guy. I'd, 
I met a guy one time who was like his slush fund guy. He said, oh, I was the guy was the money guy for your dad. You know, your dad needed money to take care of a kid. He always used to come to me and he was a really successful local business guy. And, and that was what my father did. Now people might frown on that and think that that wasn't right. Or that, that, you know, if you did it in the NCAA, it's illegal. And they'd, they'd, uh, you know, fire you from your job. But at the high school principal, when you're in a, we were in sort of a, a kind of middle class, lower middle class type of city. We had housing projects and we had nice homes and, you know, we had a little bit of a mix of people. And my father ended up coaching basketball. He was a football player, but he ended up being a more successful basketball coach. But he had those kind of inner city African-American kids sometimes that didn't come from things. So I, I learned, we learned a lot. We learned a tremendous amount about about generosity and about friendship and about fidelity. I mean, you learned all the stuff that you really should have learned I learned literally at my house. That's really uh, exceptional. And, and your mom was, as you mentioned, uh, a secretary at the the school. What did she mean to you growing up? She was the the warm and fuzzy, or was she? Uh, yeah, she was the warm and fuzzy. She was always she was the mouthpiece. She was the one who told you, you know, your dad's really proud of you. Your dad, <laughs> my dad was one of the guys who never said any of that stuff, and you sort of had to get it all secondhand from my mother. And uh, and that was kind of that was her role, but she she enjoyed that role. As I said, it was a very, I mean, it was like a fifties mm-hmm. movie kind of relationship that they had. So it was, uh, it was just a great way to grow up. It's the way that, I mean, you think you hope you provide that example for your kids right. in the way where they look and think, okay, you know, my parents, and then I was talking to my daughter about that the other day in terms of she's a very kind and generous person. And I think it's because we've modeled kindness and generosity for her. And it was modeled for us in the generation before us. Hmm. How many siblings did you have? I have two brothers and a sister. So I have an older sister, an older brother and a uh, younger brother. And how was, how was that interaction? Was that a, a, a group of kids who kind of pushed each other or supported each other or were, you know, what were those relationships? In terms of my sister and I, my sister is, I believe 65 and we're very, very similar. My brothers and I are not similar at all in terms of my, my older brother was a, kind of one of these, it's really interesting. So I have nieces, I'm 60, almost 59. And I have nieces that are 41. Hmm. So they, you know, and so I have like great nieces that are 15 or 14 or something like that. I don't know how old they are, but my brother, you know, they got married really young. It was a whole, his world was very different than the world that I kind of went into and grew up in. They're not in the sports world. They're not my younger brother's actually a liquor salesman of all things to become a very successful liquor salesman, but a liquor salesman. And so it was, uh, it was different. We, we didn't follow similar paths at all. I think for me, I was greatly influenced by my father that in that way. And the other two were, but probably not, not in the same in terms of literally, I think I really literally followed in his footsteps where my brothers kind of went a little bit different route. Mm. What did you struggle with in yourself growing up? What, was there a personal struggle at all that you, you, you were challenged by as you were a kid? I think I always struggled just from a confidence standpoint and from not, I was sort of your kind of typical middle of the road kid. I was very, very good in school, but I wanted to be an athlete. I think I wanted to be my father. I wanted to be one of these kind of larger than life characters that, uh, you know, that was great at everything. And, I was really smart. I was really good in school and I could have cared less that I was smarter that I was good in school. That meant nothing to me. 
I would much more wanted to be a really good football player. I really wanted to be a good basketball player. I ended up being a swimmer because I was a really good swimmer and a very average basketball player. But in my mind, sort of, you know, I was the best five foot nine power forward in the city. Uh, so I, I had a lot of delusions of grand. <laughs> so what drove you uh, towards, as you went into university and stuff, towards the career that you currently have? Was that uh, something you discovered, uh, something that was influenced by the surroundings of, of school, or what was the driver there? We actually, and you would remember this, unfortunately, because you're, uh, you're in my age bracket. We had an old grandfather clause athletic trainer. We had a self-taught guy who was our athletic trainer. And I can remember getting hurt. I, I probably, I don't know what I did. I, I definitely tore my medial collateral. I probably tore my ACL too. or strained my ACL in my senior year of football. And this guy was able to keep me playing, which was the most important. You know, if you'd said to me, you know, would you rather have one leg and, you know, and not, and play in the Thanksgiving day football game or have two legs, I would have gladly said, I'll go with one leg. If, if it, <laughs> at the end of the week, you have to cut it off. That's fine. And, and he kept me playing. He was able to, you know, he's one of these guys could go, okay, we'll tape it up. We'll get you out there. So I, I was able to play and not miss games. And I just remember thinking, wow, this guy has this amazing skill set. He understands because, and I've, I tell these stories all the time, but there were no physical therapists. There were no orthopedic surgeons. We, we had a doctor who, I mean, I think he was a pediatrician or a general practitioner or whatever he was, our team doctor. But, you know, he was kind of the guy, if you got hurt, he, whether, you know, he had a concussion or torn ligaments or whatever it was the same guy took care of everything and there were no physical therapists there was just mr driscoll who was an older probably at that time when i was in high school he was probably in his 60s maybe even early 70s but kind of really had taught himself about the body i, I think about it now i have no idea what his background was mm. I just know that he was the guy that was there at football practice and took care of everybody and i remember being impressed by that and that's what i thought i wanted to do so i went to school with the idea that I was going to study athletic training mm. and that's sort of, you know, in this sort of circuitous path that we take led me into strength and conditioning. I, I always, it's amazing things that happen. And this is what was interesting listening to like to Stu and Matt Jordan and guys like that talk about being in Calgary. And I always tell people you have these outliers moments that you don't know you're having where you're suddenly put around people who are going to determine everything that's going to happen from that point forward. But when you're meeting them, you don't know that when you're 18 years old, I think I was 17, actually at that time I was 17 going to college. I walk into college and the guy standing out in front of my dorm is a big guy who looks like a football player, obviously looks like he lifts weights and he introduced himself. His name is Mike Wojcik. If you follow American football, Mike Wojcik is the longest tenured guy in the national football league. So he's got more Super Bowl rings than Brady. He's been the strength and conditioning coach for Dallas, then the Saints, then the Patriots, now back in Dallas. He's been in the league, I think, for 25 years. But he was my dorm director. He's the guy, first guy I walk into, moving my stuff into the dorm. And, and I realize, hey, this guy's into lifting weights. I'm into lifting weights. This guy's got like every muscle and fitness, strength and health, all these magazines. He's literally got a catalog in his room. At that time, he's the uh, field event graduate assistant coach for the track team. So he's a shot putter and a discus thrower. It turns out not a football player, but he's into plyometrics and, you know, Olympic lifts and things that in, you know, 1977, again, the fact that you're going to run into somebody like this is just so amazingly coincidental. Mm. 
And at the same time I'm there, Rusty Jones is there, who's the second longest tenured guy in the NFL. Rusty's a graduate assistant football coach at um, Springfield College. At the same time, Mike's a graduate assistant track and field coach. And then in, you know, the sort of the third confluence of circumstance, the guy that's teaching weight training has just left university of Hawaii where he's working for bill Starr, And he comes in with the strong shall survive. So this is our textbook for weight training the year before. Literally it was a Nautilus class where they were showing you how to adjust seat heights. And suddenly this guy shows up and he's like, no, we're going to talk about the big three. And we're going to talk about squat bench and power clean and performance. And so I'm just dropped right in the smack in the middle of stuff that you could never have imagined being dropped in the middle of as a 17 year old. And next thing I know, I'm training with the, the track and field throwers and I'm, you know, I start competing in powerlifting because I realize, well, I'm actually pretty good at lifting weights. So this is something that I can play around with while I'm trying to figure out what to do now. that I'm not a football player anymore. And, uh, so I suddenly end up hanging around with these guys for three, wow. four years. And so that's, that's kind of what switched you from the athletic training sort of direction to the strength conditioning sort of side. Well, of it funny. I went through five years or uh, well, really four years of athletic training. We, then you couldn't get in as a freshman. You had to apply at the end of your freshman year, the way Springfield did it. And I stayed and was a graduate assistant, got my master's in athletic training, but at that time there was no strength and conditioning. That's what's interesting. So Mike and Rusty leave Springfield college. They, so they leave my junior year and Mike gets a job at Syracuse with Dick McPherson. He's the football strength coach and the track field event coach. So he's got kind of a part-time strength coach job and Rusty goes to work for the DiBartolo family working for the Pittsburgh Penguins who they then owned and the Pittsburgh Maulers in the USFL. But now I actually know two people who have strength coach jobs. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is getting real here in terms of what I didn't think actually might ever exist now exists. I had no people who have jobs and I can start dreaming that this is really, you know, I start thinking, wow, I love lifting weights and I really love athletic training. How do those two things come together? And to me, it was a very natural process that, well, obviously I can teach people how to really work out and prevent injuries and, and do all of these things. And so I kind of leave with that dream, but I get a job as an athletic trainer. I work at Boston university for six months as a trainer. And I mean, I hate it with a passion. It is boring. It's just not what I want to do. And I quit. So now I'm 21. I've quit my full-time job and I literally move across the hallway into this little 600 square foot weight room that we have. And I kind of take over. I'm like, okay, I'm here and I'm the new strength coach. Hmm. And everybody just kind of looked at me like, okay, why you just quit your job? Like you don't you're not getting paid anymore. (laughs) You've given you like you've appointed yourself into this new position that doesn't even exist at the university. And I was like, yep, that's exactly what I'm doing. And I started kind of pitching the coaches on letting me work with the teams and that same thing, you talk about like just the way the world works. Rick Pitino is the basketball coach at the time that I first get there. And he's really into his guys working out. And Rick leaves and goes to the Providence. And they hired John Kuster, who ended up being the Pistons coach for a while, who was Rick's assistant at the time, I think takes over as the head coach. And at some point, him or somebody else hires Steve Clifford, who's now the Orlando Magic head coach. 
and we have my our leading scorer at Boston University is Dredrick Irving, who has a son of the same last name, who's a reasonably good basketball player, Kyrie Irving, and uh, and uh, George Teague's dad is our point guard, Sean. Our our um, actually he's our two guard. Our point guard is Brett Brown, who's now the 76ers head coach. So this is all at BU in the same period of the eighties. I end up being sort of in the midst of four guys that are going to be NBA head coaches and the father of one of the best players probably in the history of the game, all in this relatively short period of time. But then what do I do? Brilliant guy that I am. I become a hockey guy. Before you start the hockey thing, I want to ask you, what was, what in your gut and in your heart is what attracted you at that time and maybe still does to strength conditioning? Was it the ability to help somebody achieve something? What was it? Yeah, I think it was that idea that, that I really believe, I mean, this works. I'd seen it myself in terms of what I had been able to do athletically just with strength and with the ability to jump, I'd seen the changes and I'd been around these track guys and I'd seen the changes in these track guys that I was training with. And I was sort of like, I mean, in some ways I thought this is easy. It's so easy to get people better. If you can simply just get them to do what you want them to do. I mean, it was kind of like the information's all out there. Most people haven't accessed it yet, but it's definitely there. And so I, I mean, I was, excited i couldn't like i couldn't believe you know people would be kind of like your bartender who coaches for free and i was like yeah but i'm I'm the strength coach at boston university you know that like it was almost uh like this illusion in my mind in terms of i had hey i had a shirt that said boston university on it and i had a weight room that i was running and i had athletes that i was training and and it was like and people like there's a small part about like you don't get any money and it was sort of like, well, that doesn't matter. I mean, I have like the best job in the world right now. I have literally a job that I dreamed up for myself. And here I am. So I was so happy and so excited that it never really dawned on me that for a long time that I was just, you know, my wife and I, I mean, I said we made huge sacrifices in terms of we worked every weekend for probably 10 years mm-hmm. in some nice restaurants, some shitty bars, some, you know, a lot of different places so that I could kind of be doing this dream job of mine that unfortunately wasn't going to pay me very much. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think you would have been if you hadn't become a strength and conditioning coach? The way I think about it right now, I, I probably would have been a carpenter. That was the only other thing I really found that I really liked and that made the days go by quick. Cause the other thing my wife and I started doing was we started buying houses and renovating. I was smart. I, I've always been smart enough to read. And I remember reading a book on how to become financially successful by investing in real estate. And so we bought a house and fixed it up and bought another house and fixed it up. And we've probably bought somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 houses since we've been together. Wow. That we've, you know, we're, we were, we were HGTV people before there was HGTV. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to swing back to your, your relationship with your lovely wife. But uh, before I get into that, I want to hear this hockey story. So what is a, what's, what's a, a little boy from uh, East coast United States who probably has never worn a pair of skates before just to get him into hockey all of a sudden. 
Well, it was interesting because actually I grew up right during the Bob Yore, Big Bad Bruins kind of era. So we were huge hockey fans okay. from a TV standpoint, but not my dad was a basketball coach. But we would go because he was the principal. We'd go and watch the high school hockey games just because we went and watched just about anything that my dad would take us to watch at that point in time. But the same thing when I got to BU, it was uh, it was mm, 82. So we just had the 80 Olympics. And obviously the BU four were very instrumental in the, the winning that Olympic gold medal. So Mike Ruzioni and Dave Silk and um, Jim Craig and Jack O'Callaghan had been on that team. And Boston University is very, very much on the map in collegiate hockey at that point in time. And we had a coach and a guy named Ben Smith, who I ended up working with in 98 when I worked with the women's Olympic team, who was kind of seeing what was going on in hockey and realized, hey, we got this strength guy here. I got to get him involved in hockey and hockey really as much as basketball ended up having this strange pedigree of guys, they were still kind of what you'd call a mid-major. They were not a, you know, if we made the NCAA tournament, we were, you know, low seed fodder for North Carolina or somebody like that. And, you know, probably never got beyond one game, but our hockey team was had won national championships and had had these guys in the Olympics. So at that time I realized, wow, this is really kind of the, the spot to hit your wagon. And the funny thing is I really was a football guy. That was what I wanted to do. But hockey just was there literally looming large over this whole thing. And they asked me to get involved and they were willing to pay me. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Awesome. So before we start winding down that road into the Boston Bruins, what, uh, where did you meet Cindy and, and, and how did that, uh, relationships uh, uh, the story is always interesting she's actually in the other room so she's getting to listen to this story which is uh i met her i I actually asked her older sister out before her she comes from a long line of beautiful women if i showed you family pictures you'd be like wow (laughs) gene pull on that side i said my kids had a 50 percent chance of uh of being attractive based on what i married into and uh and so we met at a bar like everybody does but working at a bar and uh, working at a dating, and we have been together for, I think, thirty-six years, actually. Wow. Yeah, which is we've been married for twenty-nine, but I think we've been together for thirty-six. So interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later when I do my little horoscopic uh, piece on you. But um, what has she meant to you in terms of your personal um, growth and success? Come on, you can say it to her. Really, like, she, I mean, she, honestly, she has been like my best friend through the whole thing. And I think you're really lucky. I always said that was the one thing. One, she's saying that she's in another room. Said she's really fun too, which she is. But um, <laughs> you, I was very lucky in terms of my parents were that way. They were each other's best friends. They didn't have a huge circle of friends. They did everything together. And I guess for me, I kind of grew up with that expectation that okay, this you know, my sort of, you know, spouse, life partner, whatever is going to be my best friend. And I mean, she, the poor thing, I can't tell you the number of games she went to just as a spectator, because either I was coaching or I was going, or I mean, we would literally have, you know, we'd go to a hockey game on Friday night and then we'd go to the football game on Saturday, you know, which would basically take up all day. We'd go back to the hockey game on Saturday night if we were home and, we did that every weekend when we weren't working or sometimes we'd go and, you know, she'd work 
Saturday, she'd have to work Saturday night and skip the game. You know, she'd go in and work Sunday. So it was, um, there was a lot of, I won't, I, you say sacrifice, but I don't even think you really know it's sacrifice. I think we were having a great time. I mean, we, they'd tailgate the football games. We'd go out after the hockey games. We still had a lot of fun. It wasn't, it wasn't like there was this, all this suffering that was going on, but we enjoyed the process together. That's awesome. It sounds like uh, you found a way to, well, I would be interested in if you have any sort of call it wisdom, but uh, how did you balance the demand of your life? Because I always analogize to my friends when I worked in the National Hockey League that it's like being married to a hockey team. You you do what the hockey team's doing. You don't necessarily do what you want to do to a degree. How did you balance the demands of your profession with the um, with giving back to your relationship? Well, it's interesting because, and I, I told this story uh, this summer when I did the perform better keynotes, but I didn't really balance it very well, to be honest. And there was a point in time during that, uh, that kind of Bruins era when I was still working at BU and I was working for the Bruins when we were pretty close, you know, we were like, okay, we, we need to go to a marriage counselor because this isn't working out. And I, I thought it was really funny because I can remember she kind of set it up. She found a person that we were going to go see. And it was sort of like, Hey, if we can't get this worked out where you get a little more balance in your life, basically, then, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta move on without you. And I honestly, this is the, the sad part of it is that I was thinking like, Hey, we're going to go to this thing once this person's going to explain to her how great I am. And that, you know, here's a guy that's working three jobs and he's a great provider and she's gonna, or they, I'm not going to say she, is going to straighten my wife out. So we walk in, and the first thing I realize is that it's a woman, and I'm like, okay, this might not be done in one visit. I might have to, we might have to go twice. Because it's a woman, and she's going to take her side a little bit. And so we start sort of explaining our situation, and she basically said, yeah, sometimes, you know, he leaves at 6 o'clock in the morning, he doesn't come home till 6 o'clock, or till 11 o'clock at night. You know, he's at football workouts in the morning and then he's at the weight room all day and he's at the Bruins practice and he's at the Bruins game and then he comes home. And and I'm just kind of sitting there, pretty proud of myself, actually, with my great work ethic and what a great guy I am. And she kind of looks over at me and, and literally says, so you think that's normal? And I was like, shit, I'm screwed here right now because I just, this might take three sessions. I might not be out of here in three in two like I thought. And um and I think we went probably for six months once a week. We drove over and we went for six months once a week. And we kind of talked through a lot of the stuff that we hadn't really talked through. And I realized that, okay, even though I think that the way I was conducting my life was very admirable, it probably wasn't. And that it was, I think in a lot of ways, and that's why I say to people, a lot of times it's just flat out selfish because mm -hmm. it's all about you and it's all about your career and it's all about what, you're trying to get out of it and you really aren't spending a lot of time thinking about the other person. But that was also a part of a byproduct of that kind of fifties home that I had grown up in, in terms of, you know, dad, my father used to always joke. His joke was that, you know, people who have less than two jobs are lazy. He was going to tell you that, you know, no, no, nobody worth a shit has one job. <laughs> and so that was how we were brought up. We were literally brought up to think, you know, my father, taught school and then in the fall he coached football and then in the winter he coached basketball and in the spring he umpired softball and that was how he made a living in the summer he got a summer job driving a truck when school was out and he was a truck driver for eight hours a day monday through friday for pepsi delivering you know he had a pepsi route delivered to convenience stores all along the south shore and that 
again, I, I think one thing you realize is that normal is whatever your normal existence is. And you know that from being in the National Hockey League, you'll see some guys who complain. I remember guys complain about having a busy day and they were like, you know, I have to get my car washed. I have to pick up my dry cleaning. I have to get a suit made. And you'd be like, Oh my God, (laughs) another day at the salt mine for you, you know, (laughs) but to to them, they were like, that's really busy. Like I have three extra things to do today besides go to practice. Mm. And it's going to get in the way of my nap, you know, and, but that's their normal. And, And you can see in so many of these situations, everybody has their, their view of what's normal. I thought I was normal. Hmm. And then I realized, ah, maybe not normal. Maybe and what you realize now, as you go on in years, is that most of us who get good at something are probably more than a little bit screwed up <laughs> in some way or another. And if we were really normal, we probably never would have gotten really good at anything because we wouldn't have been so obsessed about whatever it was we were doing. Mm-hmm. What changed for you though, going through that process? What did, what did it, did it ground you in a different way? Did you bring something back to the relationship that was different? Yeah. I just realized that, okay, I need to, you know, I need to, I need to have a little bit more balance. I need to realize that, okay, it's not, that it's not like there's something particularly impressive about the fact that I'm working all these hours. And again, in the sports world, people love to, in every profession, they love to glorify the hours thing, Mm -hmm. how many hours they work, how hard they work. And, and so in my same, in the couple of talks I did this summer, one of the things that I, I used the Bruce Arians quote when Bruce Arians, who was the Arizona Cardinals coach retired, I watched the press conference and he said, I knew it was time to retire. When my wife said, do you realize that our son just turned 42? <laughs> I was like, okay. That might have taken a little, you might've missed a little bit when it was 42. It wasn't like you turned four or you turned- <laughs> Well, 42. Wow. But you guys, this is how screwed up we are in terms of how out of balance. And it's glorified. You know, oh, this guy sleeps in the office. You know, this guy hasn't taken a day off in, you know, a year. And, and that's what's glorified. It's what's made me, in all honesty, I've been a way better husband, a way better father, way better at a lot of things in sort of, you know, I would say my adult life, the 40 to 60, the 40 to 58, you know. So I'm, I'm just a little shy of 59 right now. But because of that, because I've been able to look at stuff and realize, okay, I need to, there are things I, I need to reprioritize. Mm. And I read, there's a um, really good book called One Word. And if you've never read One Word, you should read One Word. But what they basically make you do is, is pick one, one word that, that needs to be the focus of your life for that year. And interestingly enough, I sat there and I thought, what, what really, and it's sort of the one, one word that will make everything else better. And I realized, okay, for me, it was husband. If I'm a better husband, hmm. you know, then I'm probably a better father. And then I'm probably better at work. And I, you know, I said, okay, here's where I need to, to kind of focus my energy. And, and I have that in this sort of later, particularly in like the 50 to 58 kind of years, I've been much better about realizing, okay, I don't have to be at work every minute of every day. I don't have to do everything that somebody asks me to do. And that's not easy when that's what got you to where you are, when you got to that point by doing this and then you suddenly like, Nope, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if I am, I'm going to figure out, you know, again, from an efficiency standpoint, I'm going to figure out better ways of doing that. And that's been really good. 
I want to play off that for a second, a little bit into performance, which um, <clears throat> has always been a bit of a thorn in my side is this, I call it martyrdom of volumetrics, which is everybody wants to do more and they're kind of martyrs about it, whether you're the coach who's there from 7am to 8pm or you're the, you know, the, the athletic trainer who thinks that being, being leaving the building earlier than anybody else is bad or, or training more and more, many more hours always seems to be sort of the driver. And I'm not actually certain that that's the best thing for performance or for, you know, relationships or life um is that been a, a thorn in your side to a degree or uh, and and where do you see or how do you see us changing that in some sense well it, you know it's funny it wasn't as much of a thorn in my side because i was doing so many things i did have to figure out how to balance be you with the bruins because neither one was paying me enough to 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 make a real living off so it was almost like okay i'll be here seven hours and i'll be here six hours and i wasn't I never had to be in that real kind of slave to like, Hey, I'm going to be the first guy here and the last guy to leave kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it, for me, it was more a matter of just, I, I think, like I said, the life balance, I think when my kids are born, cause that's when my, I left the Bruins because when my daughter was born, my wife was like, okay, something has to give. You can't have your own business. You can't be at BU. You can't be working for the Bruins. You can't do all of these things that you want to do. And then we're about to have a baby. And so that was 19 years ago. And I, and I really struggled. I'm like, okay, what do I, what am I going to give up here? And I realized I liked the collegiate situation probably a little better than I liked the pro hockey situation. And I, you know, I couldn't leave. I had just opened my business. So we were just starting. So I couldn't really leave that. So I kind of walked away from the Bruins thing at that point in time. And then later on, after I went to work for the Red Sox, I did the same thing after two years. I said, this is just not, this is not conducive to a really good family life. So I stopped doing it. And the, the Red Sox thing was more of a financial hit than the Bruins was at that time. But the, yeah, the Red Sox thing was really, was a costly change mm. because it was a, it was a great situation in a lot of ways, but it was just like, Hey, you know, I can't, I can't do the things that are really going to be important to me because you do get, I think you get to a certain point in time where it's not about money anymore. And we realize, okay, I'm, I'm making enough money. Maybe I'm not. You know, I think people always think I could make more money, but sometimes you look at it and think, yeah, I make enough. I'd rather, I'd rather see, you know, ten more hockey games than make X amount of dollars. That's why when people ask me to speak now, I always I tell them no. I'm like, no, nah, I don't. I don't talk anymore between basically October and end of April. I'm probably not doing much because I'm going to be watching my kids play and. If somebody really wants me to do something, I'm like, well, it's going to really cost you because it's my kid's time. It's not mine. My time was a lot cheaper, but my kid's time is going to come at a much higher premium. Mm -hmm. Well, what was the driver for you then? What was the driver for you to do these different things? You know, I, I guess I think everybody wants to be somebody. Like when I think I can still remember when Mike Milbury called me about working for the Bruins and I had actually told my wife, I said, you know, Mike Milbury's going to call me and offer me a job. I have no idea why I told her that or why I thought that was going to happen, but I really did think it was going to happen because I had started training some pro hockey guys in the Boston area and I'd started to have some success. And when he called, it was like, you know, I'm going to work for the Boston Bruins. Like that's, you know, you know, you've done it right. That's a big deal when you're a kid from Boston and suddenly you're, you know, walking around 
you know, rubbing elbows with Cam Neely and Ray Bork and literally like, you know, these hall of fame guys that, that you used to only be able to watch on TV. And now suddenly you're there, you're right. You're literally smack in the middle of it. So I think that's, I can't not say that's not part of the driver because I'd be lying. Mm-hmm. But I think as you get older, once you've done it, you're kind of like, okay, whatever, you know, they're just guys who can play hockey and it, you realize that you can get a lot more joy out of a lot of different things. But when you're younger, I think you're clearly driven by ego and ambition and all those things that, that maybe you don't want to admit to, but are very harsh realities of everybody's life. What did you, you know, you went into pro hockey and you'd worked college hockey. Um, what was the biggest um, sort of sea change of that when you went from one to the other that you were like, whoa, I didn't expect it to be like this. And, 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 and. you know what I didn't ex- The biggest thing that I didn't expect in all honesty, because again, I talking about 1991. I couldn't believe that guys drank after games in the locker room. I was shocked. When I came down and there's a, everybody's sitting around and everybody's got a beer, everybody's kind of whatever, sipping on a Bud Light or something. And I was like, and you know, I mean, college, I mean, there was, you had a drinking age. It was just a whole different set of rules. So the fact that here you are with men mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, these are guys who have kids and have families. And I, I liked it in some ways because at that time I was dealing with people who were a little more similar to me in terms of it was people that were like, if you think about guys like Ray and Cam and those guys are more my age. It was a little more of a peer to peer relationship. And I love the fact that you could go out with the guys after the game and have a beer. And it was kind of like, okay, I'm just hanging around with these guys. They're my friends. And, you know, we're going out and having a beer after the game is over, which you couldn't do in college. So I think that had an odd sort of appeal of kind of a more normal life. It's like, I don't need to be like some role model for these guys. They're, they're pretty well grown and they've got a pretty good idea. I just need to, hopefully help them to understand how to train better and to realize that, you know, alcohol is a diuretic and you should probably have a couple of waters before you have a beer. And, you know, there were some things that we had to square away that way, but it was just that movement from the collegiate world with kind of all of its rules and regulations into a pro sports world where it was, I guess, in a lot of ways, less, less scrutinized, less regulated. You were in hockey <clears throat> during a very, um, call it a watershed period of the game where you went from pretty much in the seventies, eighties, where guys played the game. They didn't really do that much training in the off season in the nineties money started to get in the game. You saw more guys like you being engaged in the sport, but that was kind of a transition zone. I came into the league kind of at the back end of that transition zone. So still, still saw some of the old guard that was there, but what was that like? Was it difficult to sort of convince guys to do what they needed to do at times to support what they were doing on the ice? And how was that transition period? I never found it difficult, which was interesting. I, I mean, I, I knew there was some lost causes. I knew there was some older guys who, okay, they're, they're not, they have no interest in what I'm selling. And I kind of felt like I was okay with that, but I just felt like that was kind of the job. That's the challenge is that you're trying to, you're literally trying to teach some old dogs, new tricks and, and what I found, I mean, I had some great guys, like I said, I had guys like Neely and Ray Bork and, you know, we had Rick Tockett for a while who was there and I had Ally Afraidy. I mean, I had a real, like we had a like this, this incredible personality gallery of people that came through Boston during that time period. I mean, Adam Oates was there for a time. 
we just had some amazing, you know, Hall of Fame kind of guys that were there. And it was just fun. It was enjoyable to, to figure out, okay, how do I get to this guy? How do I figure out what makes this guy tick? Because mm. it was all, you know, you did it. it's all different. Everybody kind of had a little different thing. I can remember with Neely when Neely was hurt. And I spent a lot of time with him. And he really was great for me in terms of he was a tremendous friend and was really generous with me about with everything. But one of the things he was really generous with, he would always say like, I'm going to make sure you get a lot of attention because you're not getting a lot of money. He was like, they're not paying you a lot of money to do this. So, I mean, we were on freaking ESPN. We were, we were everywhere. Every time he did something from a rehab standpoint and they wanted to film me, he'd be like, yeah, you can film me, but you got to film me and Mike. So you can't film just me. And so he put me in a lot of situations where people were able to see that maybe I was a little bit smarter than the average person and a little bit more innovative and that, you know, I, I was really working hard to try to make sure that I could get him back to be able to play. But his big thing was, I don't want to lift weights because he was a big guy. He said, I don't want to lift weights because I've already scored 50 goals. What if I can't score after I do all this weightlifting stuff? And it was, I always, even now I think of it as more legitimate question than I did at that time. Mm-hmm. But I remember I pulled up a, one day they had a list of the 60 goal scorers in the paper and I pulled up the list of 60 goal scorers. And I said, this is why you should lift weights. So you're not on this list. I said, you're in the list, you're in the list of guys who scored 50 goals a bunch of times, but you're not on the list of guys who scored 50 goals. And I knew with him, he was a hyper competitive guy. He would try to beat you at everything. And, and that was what got us over the top. All of a sudden he started training and thinking like, you think I could score 60? I'm like, Shit, he scored 50. Why couldn't he score 60? He scored 50. He never did anything. You know, you, you didn't lift weights. You didn't, you know, you weren't like, he wasn't a big conditioning guy. He was just a freaking monster of a guy who was ridiculously talented. Mm-hmm. And the year he came back, he scored 50 goals in 48 games. I don't know if you remember that year, but then tore his MCL and was out, but he would have scored 60. He might've scored 65, 70 mm-hmm. had he, uh, had he played in every game. Well, the interesting thing for me and, um, probably never chatted with you about this, but first of all, uh, growing up, I was a Boston Bruins fan. I was a Bobby Orr fan, loved the Bruins. And back in the time that you worked for the team, I had not worked in the NHL and they were the team that I cheered for all the time. So Cam and Ray were probably my favorite hockey players to, 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 to even consider and talk about. And I actually ran into your name while I was working at a, as a university strength coach and you had sort of, um, garnered sort of a uh, more recognition around the work that you did with Cam and bringing him back from that uh, quad uh, contusion and all the stuff that were the ramifications of that. And then he had that knee injury that seemed, seemingly sort of was the beginning of the end for him. But uh, that was my sort of encounter of you at that time. And I'm kind of curious, was it your athletic training background that drove you into more of a what I would call an early philosophical uh, connector of the two worlds to some degree. Yes, I, it absolutely was because it, it, it was that, and it, you know, it's funny cause I'm going to go talk out at Altus in a couple of weeks. It, again, it was, it's this sort of, um, I think confluence is the best word of a lot of these things in terms of, I had been really strongly influenced by the track and field guys. I'd competed in powerlifting. So I kind of understood the powerlifting part. And I think I realized early on that, okay, these guys aren't great athletes and this probably isn't the be all end all sort of thing that it needs to be. But because of like Mike Wojcik and guys like that, I had been really impressed by the track guys and what they could do, the way they could run, the way they could jump, the way they could sprint. And you might remember, I remember being super impressed with a guy named Stefan Fernholm, 
who used to do a lot of stuff for bigger, faster, stronger. He was a big Swede who was a hammer thrower, but who could run a four, four forty at about two sixty. And I just, so I had this sort of track idea that, wow, we can really make guys faster. And we were playing around at that time with NFL combine training. We're trying to make guys faster. I started to believe like, okay, this isn't just about getting big. This is really about making these guys actually more athletic and better at what they do. I started to really believe, and I, I believe that I could do that with anybody in any situation at any given time. And maybe that was crazy. I don't know, but I believed it. And the fact that I had an athletic training background that I did understand the body. And then I started to find, you know, I stumbled on, you know, Vern Gambetta and Don Chu and Brent McFarland and guys like this, Gary Gray, you know, guys who continued to kind of fuel my thought process that, okay, wow, there's a lot more to this than kind of this two feet on the ground, sagittal plane thing that, that everybody's glorifying mm-hmm. everywhere. And so, yeah, like it, it just sort of led me down this path. But then guys like camp too, and like not liking to lose and realizing, okay, here's a guy I loved when someone said to me, this guy's all done. He'll never play again. That was my favorite thing. When someone would say, this guy's all done. He'll never play again. I'm like, I don't know if that's true. Let's give this a couple months and see if, you know, maybe with a little bit of, good science and common sense if we can maybe get this guy to play again. And, and like I said, with Cam, I mean, it literally, when I say it made me famous, I'm not lying in the sense that it did make me famous. We were everywhere and he made, and I, I, I mean, we, you know, we've stayed friends for a long time. I don't see him as much as a, my son, you'll, you'll appreciate this story, but we've rented boxes at the fleet center or at the garden or whatever the hell it's called now a couple of times. And Cam would come up and say, hi, you know, we've had a couple like little staff parties up there. And I mentioned him to my son one time. I said, you remember Cam, right? And he goes, yeah, the old guy that works for the Bruins, right? <laughs> and I was like, um, yeah, I guess that's who he is, right? He's the old guy that works for the Bruins. But, you know, that's sort of what he's become. But in the early going with me, he was, if you can imagine, and this, most people don't know the story, but he won the seventh player award one year, which was like, whatever, unsung hero kind of thing in Boston, and uh, because he had, you know, been hurt and had this great comeback and the seventh player got a car and he gave me the car. Wow. He was like, he, you know, I had this shitty pickup truck that I drove around all the time. And he was like, you know, well, you know, I, I already got a car. You can have the car. And I was like, that's pretty nice. You know, that this guy would just hand off the, the car that he just got as an award as a thank you, because he realized that you were helping him to, to get to where he wanted to go. So I, and I think in some ways too, that reinforced this idea that I, I used to think I could fix anything. I can get anybody better. And I think that's a great way to think. I think that's how you should think. If you, if you look at people who come in and say, Hey, I got hurt and I can't play again. And, and you think, yeah, you're right. I probably can't help you. Then you probably should be getting another job. Mm-hmm. What's your most affectionate memory of working in the national hockey league? my most affectionate memory probably uh actually not it might have been that seventh player award night but one of the nights cam got an award and he thanked me by name in front of seventeen thousand people you know he named about four people that he wanted to thank for the fact that he was there and that he was able to come back and i remember sitting there like are you shitting me he literally like he just thanked me by name in the middle of the freaking boston garden in front of seventeen thousand people i was i mean literally like, i felt like i was you know, touching the roof, sitting up there. And I think, you know, for me, that was the, the best memory because as I said, I, you know, I, I literally, I grew up 
you know, 15 minutes from there. When, I, when we were kids, we'd go to the Boston Braves games because we didn't have money to go to the Bruins games. We just watched the Bruins on TV. And so to suddenly realize that I'm getting my, my name mentioned, it's much the same like with the Red Sox, you know, walking out onto the, you know, getting a World Series ring and jogging out onto the field at Fenway Park and having them give you your World Series ring. You know, you're like, you shit me. I just, I just ran onto the field at Fenway Park and somebody handed me a World Series ring. Mm. It's, it's, I've, been, I've been so incredibly, and I say lucky, and then sometimes I think lucky is probably a bad descriptive because it's not really lucky. But whatever it is, it, it, I have been that thing. <laughs> and how, did you, how did you feel uh, when Ray hoisted the cup when he was in Colorado? I cried, actually. To be perfectly honest, in Colorado, I cried. When he, we sat, we were watching it on TV. And I legitimately got tears in my eyes because I knew how much it meant to him. He, they raised it really, you know, same thing. We've had a great relationship over the years. But he called me when he was thinking about asking for being to be traded. He said, you know, I just want to call a couple people. I wanted to see what you guys thought about, you know, what I look selfish. Would it make me look bad? And I was like, you know, like, one, I just couldn't believe that he cared enough to actually ask people. You know, here's a guy, arguably the greatest that's ever played his position. But here he is worried about what people's perception is going to be. If he says, Hey, I want to, you know, I'd like you to trade me to someplace where I actually have a chance to win the cup. So when he did get traded and, and win it, yeah, I was, I mean, I was beyond happy. He said the only summer he ever trained with me was the summer before that. He was always a guy that trained on his own. He actually trained on his own on a program written for by his high school phys ed teacher. Hmm. And he did Ben's program every summer. And I never bothered him because I was a machine. He was in unbelievable shape. He worked out like a dog. He did. I mean, I didn't always agree with what he did, but, but he did it with great conviction and, you know, on a schedule and with incredible regularity. But that summer going into the Colorado year, he said, I really want to, um, you know, I want to do everything possible. I can. And here's a guy, like I said, that's almost, I think he was probably close to 40 at that time. And he had come in and said, I'm really going to take it serious this summer. And I remember looking, thinking, wow, like you're really going to take it serious this summer. And he did. And so it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. That's what I said. It's a, the, the number of things that I've had the, the opportunity to kind of be involved in and be around mm-hmm. is really sort of almost Forrest Gump-esque in terms mm-hmm. of my life. I asked uh, Jerry Ramajita because uh, I think, you know, guys like yourself who've experienced these different things, it's not – something that's commonplace i think sometimes championships uh, people don't recognize how difficult they are to win and um you know jerry won a super bowl which is a very special uh special moment well what did you learn uh in watching a team come together and win a world series what, what did you learn from that episode in your life i learned a lesson that most people just keep not learning is how much character matters Mm-hmm. because we had the guys that we had that if you think about that Red Sox team, Ryan Dempster, David Ross, they had gone out, Johnny Gomes, Shane Victorino, they had literally gone out and said, we're going to load up on a little bit of character and a little bit of characters and maybe a little bit of both in terms of some guys that really, and, you know, Johnny Gomes was a guy who walked around, you know, and he was talking to the guys about the duck, the duck boats in spring training. Literally, a guy, you can ask guys that were on that team. He was like, you know, what color duck boat are you going to be in when we, when we go in the parade? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so they brought in, they, they didn't necessarily bring in talent. 
it brought in character. And I think, and I've said this over and over again in so many sports, character matters. Having guys around that sort of know what the right thing is and do it is hugely underrated in every sporting area. Because I'm sure you've, you've been in the professional sports world. It's amazing to see how easily one guy of poor character can ruin your team. And in the same way, looking and thinking how much one guy of really great character can lift your team. If you get one or two or three or four of these guys, it's amazing the change that it can make within your organization. And in the same way, if you put up with guys that are assholes, that's probably the organization that you're going to have. And sometimes people may think, well, we need, you know, he's our best player. We need to put up with him. I'm, I've, my experience over the years and over a lot of years, they show me that that's not true and that you're probably much better off kind of cutting those guys out of the picture early and, mm-hmm. and moving on than, than trying to sort of make excuses or allowances for their lack of whatever it is. So yeah, it was a, the, the character Ben Charrington that year did an amazing job of going out and identifying, okay, we need to get some really good, you know, clubhouse guys, not dressing room guys in hockey, but clubhouse guys in, uh, in baseball. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those guys obviously contributed, but Ryan Dempster, the Canadian, by the way, was a, uh, one of the, one of the, not too many, uh, Canadian may, I know I saw that big maple, leaf. <laughs> but, um, he was a real warrior. You know, he was a guy like who he grinded out every start. He was not, he was sort of at the end of his career and, but you know, they needed a guy who was going to give him 20 good starts a year but just be an incredibly good influence on everybody else around him. And he was that guy and David Ross, same thing, you know, backup catcher, same guy they brought in to be that guy. And they just really, uh, those guys made a massive difference in the quality of the people that we were around on a day-to-day basis. What have you seen as, as differences, if you've seen between Olympic athletes and professional athletes? The Olympic athlete is, is really the, I guess the last of the real amateurs. That's why I love, like I loved my, the hockey girls that I worked with. I mean, I've had the pleasure of really like being, you know, deeply immersed in that for probably 12 years mm-hmm. and making some incredible friends. But these are people who really, you talk about love of the game. None of those people are ever going to get rich and they're doing it anyway. And they're doing it day in and day out with the idea that they're going to win some sort of you know, Olympic medal. And, and the professional athletes can be, and again, it's because it's their reality. They can be spoiled and entitled. I remember some of the girls were telling me about going over to uh, Sochi with the guys. And, and some of the guys were like, you don't get paid. You know what I mean? They had no idea. They did. They just weren't paying attention to the fact that, that these women who were over there trying to win an Olympic gold medal were living two and three and four in an apartment in Boston somewhere to be able to train and had basically no salary and were always trying to figure out how they were going to pay whatever their expenses were. And then they're over there with the, you know, the NHL guys who were taking a couple of weeks off from the NHL, you know, and the average salaries probably, you know, on that team was probably $6 million. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it couldn't in some ways be more different, mm-hmm. but then in some ways it could in some ways be more the same in terms of your better, you're real. Um, Martin Rooney said one time, there's a big difference between getting paid and being a professional. And I think that's, so your guys that are, 
real pros do train like your Olympic athletes would train. They're there every day. Like I've got a great bunch of guys, but, but I don't go, I don't shoot for the high end anymore. I've got some great locally. And I've got Jim, young Jimmy VC, who's I, I right now, actually you'd laugh, but I think I have 20 second generation kids in my gym, sons of guys that I coached at some point during their, either their collegiate or their NHL career. That must be a cool, uh, a cool yeah. feeling. Yeah, it's a really sure. cool feeling. We're not far away. When Chris Bork's son, five more years, I'll hit my third generation uh, kid from a, wow. a professional standpoint. You know, because I've had both of Chris, both of Ray's boys to have trained with me for a long time, and at some point, I'll have Chris's son. And uh, so <laughs> you'll have to get that picture for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I had a picture of ten, like I had, you know, Tommy Fitzgerald's kids trained with me. You know, Tommy was one of my first professional clients and you know like i said jimmy vc's two kids i i had him when he was a when he was with the bruins he was kind of one of the, those up and down guys during his career but he was there with the bruins and you know sean mcgeckman's son who had a, a long nhl career joe sacco's son who had a long nhl career scarlet chances three son or two sons who had long you know nhl careers bobby carpenter's son and daughter yeah so i think we totaled it out at about 21 time that we're roaming around there You've, uh, you know, you've had a pretty neat career when it comes to the different teams and organizations that you worked for. Why, what was the stimulus for you to build a business? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, the stimulus really was not wanting to be that guy. Now at this stage of my career, looking and saying, oh, I could have done that. I didn't want to be that guy. And I had some people advise me not to do it. I had a bunch of people actually who were kind of prominent in the profession who said, don't, you know, you're crazy. Don't pay rent. Don't have a building. Don't do that. But I always kept thinking to myself, yeah, I, I don't want to have regret. I don't want to look back and think, Hey, I knew this was going to be big. And I, I can't tell you I, that I knew it was going to be as big as it is in for me or for anybody else. But I do remember thinking that this performance training business was going to take off. And I just felt, like with everything, I think, like, Hey, you got to give it a shot. You know, you can always go back. You can probably always get another college job. There'll always be something that you can go back to, but you can't go back to being one. I think, I honestly think I probably opened the first sports performance gym in the United States. I'm not sure, but I don't know of anybody else before me that had an actual facility where they were training athletes on a regular basis like we were doing in 19 whatever 96 or 97 and now god they're every corner you run around there's another guy that's trained trained everybody i have said if they met him in an elevator once they trained him (laughs) you left it for a moment and went to california and uh that didn't work out cindy cindy didn't like it down there from what i gather you told me but uh, Cindy wanted to come back home and I didn't really like, I worked for Mark Verstegen, who I love. Same thing. One of my, has become one of my best friends, but I realized I was just doing the same thing in a different place. And I kind of, I think I ran away a little bit. It was probably in some ways a little bit of a cowardly move on my part in terms of there were some things on the home business side that I just couldn't take. I couldn't deal with anymore, you know, in terms of partners and things just not going well. And I said, you know something, I'm getting the hell out of here. Mark, through this crazy offer one time about running his Carson place that he was going to open. And I was like, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm getting, getting out of Dodge, leaving Boston. But same thing. I always think all these things that you do end up being really good because I ended up selling all my stuff, moving to California with the idea that I was going to stay out there, 
we, we said, we're not going, you know, don't, don't keep a house here. Don't do anything. Don't know, no lifeboat, just go. And, uh, and I said, everybody should probably do that once in their life. They should probably sell all their shit and move someplace else just to know that they can do it and survive. But we did end up back here and I ended up back in the same business. That's kind of a long, a long convoluted story, but it, uh, it worked out really, really well. And it probably again made us, it probably made us a better couple. It probably made us a better family. So I like to discuss another kid too. Cause yeah, my son, <laughs> what was the instigator of you becoming a teacher? Because you know, I, I think one of the things that um, I most admire in you is your decision not to just revel in the fact that you've had all these opportunities and to enjoy that success, but you've passed it on to people and you like teaching and you like mentoring. Where's that come from in you? I think the same thing from my father, from my background, from growing up, literally, I mean, I just think it's in you'd appreciate this. I can remember years ago, I went to do a talk at a local high school and we had to walk through the school at night when the lights were out. And I, I remember walking through the hallways of the school with the lights out and getting the best feeling think, man, do I love being in a school hallway with no lights on and thinking, cause when we were kids, we'd play on Saturdays in the school. None of the lights, the school would be all closed down. My father would have practice and we'd just go in the hallways and run up and down the hallways and have races and run up and down the stairs and go in the wrestling room and wrestle. But all the lights were off. And I just said, I got this incredibly good feeling of being in a completely unlit high school. And I just, I mean, that was literally how I grew up. I looked up to teachers I think I thought that teachers were really important. And I always, I mean, I can, I still remember, I can remember as much as he's become the grumpy old man of strength and conditioning. I can remember watching Vern Gambetta early on and thinking, man, if I can ever do that, if I can ever get up in front of a group like him and be that confident and command the room the way that he does, then I'll have really made it. Mm. And I can remember later on thinking, you know, I think I'm getting there. I think I'm, uh, and moving down that path in terms of being a, a good teacher and somebody that can hold people's interest and, and be both informative and entertaining at the same time, which I think is the key to education. Education is so friggin' boring. Sometimes you, when you dread the idea of taking a class because someone's going to bore you to death. So I try to, I try to not do that. What do you say to the sec- the secret keepers, the guys who uh, think that they're, that they're doing something special and don't want to tell anybody else about it. Oh, I mean, get over yourself. That's what I tell them. I think I'm, and it's amazing. As I said, having someone said the, uh, a couple months ago, they said, you know, you're going to be the first generation of guys that get to retire from this field. And I said, anybody, if the secret is, there is no secret. If you think, you know, you're wrong. Like Thomas Myers did a talk one time and he got up there and he said, 50% of what I'm about to tell you is wrong. I'm just not sure which 50%. <laughs> and when you think, you, know, you think of the conviction with which you told people things in the 90s. And you were wrong. Mm-hmm. And so now I, I'm never, I, I try to never be too, uh, too completely right. Like I always look at, God, this is the way I think it is right now. But, and I laugh because people, one of my the big criticisms of people who don't like me is I, he's always changing his mind. And I always say to people, if, if you're accusing me of learning, then, you know, consider me guilty because I am always, I'm always changing my mind. And, I'm, and I, I've been really good 
at figuring out who's smarter than me. And when someone's smarter than me, I will readily acknowledge that they are smarter than me and steal their ideas. I always say, when I heard Stuart McGill speak, I didn't sit there and think, oh, I know more about the low back than him. I'm like, no, he spent his whole freaking life doing this. I should just sit here, keep my mouth shut and take notes, which is exactly what I did. And I think with so many people, you have to be that way and realize, okay, this person's better than I am at this right now. I should calmly sit back and try to get as much out of it as I can. And then, then go back and figure out how does it help me? How does it help my athletes? Because I always said, my athletes don't care where I learned what I learned. No one ever said to me when I came back with a new idea, they never said, Oh, whose idea was that? They didn't care. They only cared that I came back and said, I think we're going to do this instead of this. I think this is going to work better. And so in some ways you kind of develop that security of realizing that, Hey, nobody's, they're judging you based on results. And whenever people say, Oh, you know, you can't control wins and losses and you can't control who gets hurt and who doesn't. I'm like, I don't think that that's true. I don't think obviously you, I can't make a bad team into a good team, but I do believe that good strength and conditioning swings the pendulum a little bit one way or the other. And I do believe that, that you can have an influence. I do believe that good strength and conditioning. I saw it because, and again, you would remember this in 1991, we set the record for man games lost in national hockey league. So my first year in the NHL, if you were judging it based on that was an abject failure. I think we had 800 and some odd man games lost and every main Mariner played at least one NHL game that year because we couldn't keep anybody healthy. But by the end of the time I left, we were second lowest in the league. We were down in the low ones, like 120 or something like that the last two years. Did that have something to do with what they did, what we did? I have to believe that it did because we were one of the first teams to really start to embrace this and really try to make guys work out on a relatively consistent basis. And I mean, our injury rate, I'm not, you know, I always said you don't prevent injuries, but I do believe you influence the numbers and Mm -hmm. that good training is always going to influence those numbers. Well, you don't have to convince this cat. I'm a full believer of that. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I could probably take up a few more hours worth of your time, but you've got to get on to uh, bigger, more important things in this world. Um, Two questions for you. One is if you met Mike Boyle, who was in that confluence of moment, but probably didn't know he was in it, what would you say to him? I'd say, don't be such an asshole. Shut your mouth and listen. (laughs) Because I think I was probably a little bit of a pain in the ass as a kid in terms of, the typical sort of doesn't know when to, to sit still and just soak it all in. Mm-hmm. But I also would tell them don't do anything different because all the decisions, even as bizarre as some of them ended up being, or sometimes you looked and thought, I don't know why that happened. The, the end was really good. So it's, it's sort of like a, you know, a really long, crazy book. It's like, don't worry about it. The ending is going to be good. So stick with it. Keep going to the end. Don't, don't bail. Cool. When you pass from this earth, which I hope isn't for a very long time, how would you like to be remembered? Um, I hope the headstone says good husband, good father, and adequate coach. Um, that'll, I'll be fine with that. Awesome. <laughs> as, I've, as, I've, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize the things that are really important. And, um, you know, the athletes come and go, let's face it. You've got guys that, you know, again, you know, there's all these like big brand name guys that you were really good friends with at some point who now, if you saw them, I'm sure they'd give you a big hug and say, it's so great to see you, but they're not part of your life every day. They're not, 
they're not your family. They're not people that you're going to see every minute. So I, I, I just want to be, if I remember it as a, I always write, I have a gratitude journal and I always say, I want to be a good husband, a good father and a good coworker. If I'm those things, then everything else will take care of itself. Awesome. Thanks a lot for your time, man. It's been really uh, a pleasure to sit and chat with you. Hopefully we'll do it another time over a beer and uh, thanks for taking the time and thank your lovely wife, Cindy, for giving me some of your time. So I will. Thank you very much for having me. Like I said, keep it up because these things are fabulously entertaining. I'm, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the Steve Norris episode. So I've gotten to do a couple of uh, USA hockey things with him and yeah. he's just a great guy, wonderful speaker. So awesome. I'll be interested to see what his influence was on all these other interesting so i i missed doing this in our little presentation together so i'm going to actually edit this and do my uh your purpose so you are a scorpio four and unusually we have a few scorpios in the uh, fraternity of strength coaches but and you know what's really cool you're going to have an interesting conversation with Stu mcmillan because you guys are both scorpio fours so you have the same purpose so I knew that when I saw it. I said, I looked up Scorpio 4. Yeah. So your purpose is to learn to use your strong sense of individualism to unite rather than to keep you isolated and alone. Change your thoughts and you change the world. Norman Vincent Peale. The Scorpio 4 loves tension, change, and crisis. Fours have a strong need for excitement and desire for unity. They are catalysts in the lives of others, and their own world goes through many changes. They take things to the limit, and then miraculously, a new point of view is achieved. They make great negotiators in intense and powerful situations. They need to be put on the edge. Danger is an attraction. Relationships can be a disaster. Scorpio 4 is restless and needs someone who can relate to them as they constantly evolve. So you can thank Cindy for relating to you and, and watching you constantly evolve. Oh, it was funny. I read it. I went and read Stu's because I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm Scorpio 4. He's got to be the end of October. Same as me. And I was like, and then I read, I mean, it was amazing. And I'm not an astrology person, but it was amazing how descriptive it was for me in terms of, it was almost a little bit weird to think, wow, this is uh because you know, they talked about, you know, in another part of it was like intensely loyal, tend to be monogamous. It was like, I mean, it, it, there were so many things where I thought, wow, this is. This you is guys so are cut from the same swath, so you'll have an interesting time. Yeah, he's smarter than I am, I'll tell you that. Sometimes I don't even know what he's talking about. He's so smart. <laughs> I'd be like, I can't wait to spend it. Like, I've only met him once. I met him for like a brief period one time when I was out at AP. And, uh, and then they asked me to come out and talk. And I was like, absolutely. I would love to do that. Cause I love Dan. I've had some great, I've, I don't know if I've ever actually met Dan in person or just had phone conversations with Dan, but in the same way, I mean, they're, they're very like super intelligent, caring, purposeful people. They've really got, like they've got an idea that's unconventional and they're trying really hard to put this unconventional idea into practice, which is pretty cool. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, you, uh, you, Dan's is coming out tomorrow, so you'll enjoy that one. And uh, thanks again for your time. All right. Thank you. Awesome.